Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 11 of the One Last Sketch Podcast. Woo! I'm your host, Michael Wojcik, and I'm joined across the table, but rather some distance away by... Marie Gajmarek. Today we're talking about The Hunger Games. Two podcasters enter, one podcaster leaves. <laughs> Yes, we are. This is a bit of a departure from our previous podcast in that we've usually talked about stuff that only genre audiences probably would have read. This time we're talking about a mega bestseller. Yeah, does this mean we're selling out in some kind of way? I'm sure it does. <laughs> I think we need to make more money, actually, to sell out in any way. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> okay. I don't know about you, but I tend to feel a kind of ambivalence when picking up books like this. Yeah. I read it partly because, being a medical student, I needed some popcorn literature, and I felt it would probably be light. And that was the main reason, really. So I actually watched the film first before reading the book, mostly because when I actually did want to read the book, it was continuously out from the library and had a very long waiting list. So now that I actually have read them, it was only because they were sitting there. They went beyond their popularity point. <laughs> Finally. Finally. So Ooh. there are three books, The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, and Mockingjay. We will start off with a brief summary of the premise and then move on to our potted reviews so that afterwards, if you don't want to be spoiled, you can just turn this podcast off and go read them if you want to. And then we'll dive into analysis. The premise is we're in a futuristic world, and it's kind of dystopian, by which I mean a lot dystopian. And there's kind of one sector where all the power is centered, and also in kind of a hyper-weird way, all the money is also centered. And there are the Hunger Games, which is sort of just um, your basic kind of 80s pit fight game going on uh, that happens every year. And children are made to do this because it's a young adult book. There's a pit fight, and we're focusing on one character who's called Katniss, which is actually a kind of plant I was pleased to discover, and not some other weird kind of name. As for our potted reviews, I quite enjoyed reading the first one. Then I read the other two. Yeah. Did not enjoy them nearly as much. I feel like it's one of those cases where the first one had a lot tighter editing on it because it was the first novel. Then it became famous, and the other two just kind of came out. I'm not even sure if that was the case, but we'll get into that later. Yeah. Uh, so, for this point in the podcast, we say, yes, the first book is probably the one you want to read. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the problems start showing up, which doesn't mean that you shouldn't read the other two, because they go by really quickly. But Yeah, they're enjoyable. All right. My general problem, and I think this was what really brought the series down in the latter two books, is that the first one is written in this really close first-person, present-tense style. Not very flowery language at all, not stylistically interesting, but is very immediate. And then the story in the other two books, as it widens out, it goes way beyond being contained all in what's happening with the main character, Katniss Everdeen, and the author, Suzanne Collins, ends up having to 
twist events in such a way that revelations are made yeah. in rather unbelievable ways. Yeah, it's she she tries to keep Katniss in the center and it's it doesn't work so well when it's not about her so much anymore. No, it works really well in the first book and this is why mm-hmm. probably it was such a bestseller. Even mm-hmm. Again, quality and popularity don't really correlate in any way. It has actually though in this one. I was really pleased with The Hunger Games as a young adult novel and I thought lots of it would actually be a good book for lots of young adults to read because it's kind of clever actually and it's kind of I felt that she was very realistic as a as a character very much not like just as I always hated with young adult books that the teenagers were sort of like adults but just kind of stupid <laughs> compared <laughs> But I like how Katniss is like uninformed about some things, but she's not really stupid. She's very good at what she knows how to do, and she's also kind of reacts in sort of a way that actually a fairly reasonable person in the situation would react. So, yeah, I kind of like that. It's a very straightforward narrative. It has a lot of drive to it. You want to know what happens. I read it in a day. I think you probably yeah. did too. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> very hard to put down. The voice of Katniss is really believable in the first book. Her actions make sense. Absolutely. They make sense as a teenager, which I really like about it. Is that she, she doesn't read as an adult. We're trying to write a teenager. She reads really like a teenager. The quote unquote love that develops between this other character, the baker's boy Peta, and mm-hmm. her on the cameras and her confusion over it was actually really well played mm-hmm. until the end. Yeah. The ending of The Hunger Games is kind of, it's great up until right when they get back. Like, literally the very, very last couple of paragraphs are really strange. The conclusion of the first book is really satisfying. Yeah. In that they're able to get back at the capital, which has put together these games in um, a way that's completely logical, for one thing. That always helps. And also does send this message and shows that these people are going to be in danger afterwards for what they did. Mm-hmm. However, after this happens and they're coming back home... A love triangle suddenly arrives. Yes! <laughs> this and other character named Gale, who Katniss was hunting with at the beginning of the book, mm-hmm. suddenly shows up in her memories again as a potential love interest, which he was not presented as. I think he was always potentially a love interest, but yes. she assumed going into the Hunger Games herself that she wasn't going to live and wouldn't see him again. And then, I, I, like, I get the inner conflict, but I felt it was a little more melodramatic even there. I felt the voice kind of fell apart a little bit, and it was more of a plot convenience than an actual plot-driven thing. And this carries on in the other two books. <laughs> yes. The basic premise behind Catching Fire is that Katniss has won the Hunger Games and saved her other district partner, Peta. And potential Uh love interest. In the second one, there is another Hunger Games called the Quarter Quell at the 75th, which is a nice name for it. Yes, good alliteration there. (laughs) There's always something special that happens at the Quarter Quell, and this particular one, they draw from the existing pool of victors. Mm -hmm. When that happened, then President Snow, who's the main antagonist in this book series, Mm-hmm. comes up with this. I just thought, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> yeah, well... It goes against I, everything that we've at least come to understand about why the Hunger Games work. Mm-hmm. In the first book is keeping the districts down, and they have to depend on their children for food packets that come in if they put their names more often in the draw. 
And then this happens, which takes away the hope of a victor, essentially. <laughs> yeah, and it's just... I mean, I, I kind of get that if Katniss is your main character, you do need to sort of have things happen around her. But since it, it sort of is is the problem with Catching Fire and Mockingjay, is that it's, the problem is it's turning into the revolutionary kind of Catching Fire, hence the title. And it really, I, I it, it would have been more interesting if um, it the world had actually expanded out from Katniss's view and other people were involved from the beginning, then it might have probably gone a little more sensibly. Because there are hints of really intriguing things you could do with this setting for all its simplicity afterwards, but there, mm-hmm. it's almost impossible for Collins to follow it up on them by limiting the POV to Katniss in this yeah. way. And in the case of Catching Fire, the first two-thirds kind of ramble around, and I'm annoyed that there's going to be another Hunger Games, but the book doesn't really come alive with a driving narrative until the games start again as well. Yeah. It's, um... <laughs> that The first part could have been shorter. <laughs> this is really what it comes down to there. Yes, and it just gets kind of irritating, because on the one hand, you're going, well, she's rehashing what happened in the first book mm-hmm. in the last third of this, despite it being um, a more creative <laughs> arena this time. The arena... <laughs> That's, that, that arena is sort of where I, I really started to lose my um, suspension of disbelief because, I mean, obviously for this setting, you do have to suspend your disbelief to kind of be like, okay, yeah, sure, so this is how the world is in this in this um, story. But the just it's just the sort of technological magic finger-waving that happens to create an arena of the sort of incredible craziness that is the second arena that I'm kind of started to go... Wait, what? How'd... Well, especially because from what we've seen of the capital, all the technology and advanced things are kept within just this one city Mm -hmm. in one district. But even for the level of technology that's on display at the capital is not far enough for you as a reader to believe that the stuff that happens in the second arena is is entirely possible. Well, and it's just like the first arena made sense and was sort of like, yeah, you throw people into some woods. It was kind of like a North American sort of wilderness spot with some flamethrowers and things thrown in. Yeah, sure, whatever. Um, and a couple of things put in. But in the second arena, it's it's really more, you kind of get a sense of a weird level of control that uh, the capital has over it, and it's almost to the point where well, if they have that level of control over this area, why don't they just exercise it everywhere all the time, to be honest? The character interactions also start getting strange, yeah. because the teenagers do act like teenagers do. Mm -hmm. Everything that happens in the first book with these groups of teenagers allying and going after each other and double-crossing each other makes sense. Yeah, I mean, if you took a, a, like a class from high school and said they all had to kill each other, that that's really is kind of what the first book reads like. Mm-hmm. And things that I feel like putting a bunch of adults who've done the Hunger Games before, who know what it's like, and who are now have lived long, varied lives of politics, why would you throw them all into this arena? Like, it, the premise is really strange in Catching Fire. I feel like it, President Snow would be better served to let these people fade into obscurity than he would have been to put them all on the front line again. Yes, because is that when you put them in a second time and they're experienced, who exactly are they going to turn against? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Which is exactly what happens, sure, but uh, that they're going to turn against the game makers as opposed to each other. 
and being adults and it's just like the thing about kids is that or having like anyone anyone from like the age of what is it eleven in Hunger Games that they can start actually being in the arena onward? Is it younger? I'm not sure, but something at eighteen anyway. Yeah, it, it, like, the thing about that age group of, of people is that usually you can tell them what to do, and they are kind of used to obeying authority in having parents. For any teenagers out there listening to this, I don't mean that you're all stupid or anything. I just mean that adults have. Have a, have had time being more in, more independent, getting more experience with that, and they tend to just react differently under this kind of adversity. And by which I mean, they might come up with more kind of political plans rather than just kind of the reactions you expect from somebody who doesn't necessarily know what to do. Well, I think that's a good place to stop talking about catching fire. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, we're just gonna get annoyed. <laughs> yes, they break out of the arena anyway, which was pretty obvious was the only thing that could possibly happen. Yes. Uh, in Mockingjay, it, that's where things really start to ramble and lose any narrative thread whatsoever. Yeah, it's, I actually thought the first part of Mockingjay works better than the first part of Catching Fire. That's true. Yeah. Because now you have the sense that rather than kind of like wondering what's going to happen so much, you get this better sense of um, that the, the revolution is beginning. And they're off in District 13, which apparently has nuclear power, but it isn't using it. Yes. Anyway, it turns out that the game maker from the second book was in on it, which also brings me to a large problem I had in the third book in that there's this overwhelming attempt by Susan Collins to show that Katniss becoming the Mockingjay, the symbol for the revolution, is exactly the same as her her being made into a reality TV star in the first two books and being groomed towards that. And there is a point where there's battles going on and all the districts have rebelled, and they're so fixated on how Katniss looks on television and her costumes yeah. and where she's appearing that it feels like it's overwhelming what the revolution would actually develop like at that point. I feel like usually once there's a revolution or at least, or, or at least to be honest, a war at this point, because now it's civil war, um, you'd have more discussion of like tactics, supplies, movement of people. And that would be what would be going on versus the propaganda, I feel, would, be, would just be a lot less. Although so if the problem is, again, Susan Collins has to sort of try to keep Katniss in the center, and that's all she's seeing is the propaganda because, to be honest, she's not really suited for war. She isn't. Well, except no. for the one bit where they managed to shoot airplanes out of the sky with bows and arrows. Yeah. But that is the case where Katniss has to be in combat situations so Suzanne Collins can show, look, there's a war going on, but mm. she also has to be a propagandist, which she wouldn't realistically be because it puts her in way too much danger. And it doesn't help that characters are commenting on the fact that she's in danger. It's, I just feel like as a symbol of freedom – as a character, it would have made perhaps, uh, uh, of course, like, cause I know everything, <laughs> perhaps it would have made slightly more sense to have Katniss in some area behind the scenes as an encouraging voice rather than having to be on the front lines. Because if she's going to be a symbol, why not keep her safe as a symbol versus, I don't know, potentially murder, having her get murdered by somebody, which is not so useful. Mm-hmm. Especially because she said on pathways that do kind of meander about and go nowhere. 
Uh, I'm thinking specifically of her going on her mission to assassinate President Snow. Yeah. Which it turns out, well, she doesn't, for one thing. Mm-hmm. It's to get her to a specific place in the city which she would have been in anyway had mm-hmm. she not done this. Are you talking about the sudden arrival of the video game as the form of narrative? Yeah. Well, that's also okay, a I, giant, I, a giant problem with this book in the last segment is that the capital's defenses yeah, is so let's to make the this. capital into another arena. And it just, okay, this is the part where that I really, really sort of lost my temper with the book because I'm like, in what world can you possibly live where you could potentially accidentally murder all of your citizens if something misfires? What kind of civil planner would come up with this sort of place to live in? What sort of people would actually agree to live here? And you can't just say, oh, because the capital is um, all-powerful and making them do it. It's, I think, no. Yes, the whole capital is laced with elaborate booby traps and pods. Elaborate, like highly beyond like what the, would Okay, be- there is one point where I did want to throw the book across the room. Mm-hmm. Where the street suddenly opens up into something called Labeled on the map, the meat grinder, which as yes. far as I can tell is an actual meat grinder. And I'm like, but that wasn't even the street. That's like in the underground tunnels where the maintenance guys walk around. And I'm like, okay, I get you might make the argument that you don't care about your maintenance guys very much, but would you kill them all because of an accidental misfire on your meat grinder booby trap, which is apparently here in the off chance you get assaulted by um districts that are supposed to be, you know, kept under... Um, then you're not going to have any maintenance guys left. And they do <laughs> misfire is the worst part. Like, the mm-hmm. rebels at one point send in a bunch of unmanned vehicles to set off the booby traps just yeah. by driving down the streets. Yes. I mean, I suppose the argument there is that the, they've now all been keyed to start because there's the civil war going on. Mm-hmm. But it's like the weirdest sort of form of warfare. I mean, I think that that having like street warfare would make more sense for the capital at this point. There's barely having... any soldiers that appear. Yeah, it's like you think having people, seeing things, making decisions, doing stuff that's useful would be a better plan. Because they, than, uh... they bump into some peacekeepers at one point, mm-hmm. which are imme- they immediately get their heads torn off mm-hmm. by mutations, which are unleashed into the tunnels which Katniss has gone into. And they're supposed to scent her, I guess, but really they just kill anything that they come across. It's it's just, it's, it's sort of like the actual historical story of, um, I think it was Soviets, uh, training dogs to run under tanks with bombs, and then having uh, this problem where the dogs also ran over, r- instead of going to the enemy, ran under their own tanks. I mean, why would you put in animals when a person with a gun who's been told what to do is much more effective at anything? It's, it just seems like the capital has no sort of sense of actual planning and is foolish, actually. Mm-hmm. And again, it's the level of technology that doesn't make sense. I mean, in in the second arena in Catching Fire, we were talking about how that it's unrealistic. This is goes beyond that to unrealism to a sort of a realm that I'm like, no, this can't possibly. I'm afraid you have now hanged my dis my disbelief, and I can't keep it on anymore. And I just at this point was just reading through to finish the book because it was getting very irritating. Then we come to a 
predictable, but at least satisfying as far as this book could have a satisfying ending. Yeah, except the unfortunate, uh, we just have to throw one more tragedy at Katniss so that, her, so that she can be really PSD for the rest of her life. <laughs> yes, well, it did, did make sense to me that they would suggest that, well, we conquered the capital, obviously the next thing to do is to take all their children and hold our own Hunger Games, which obviously this rebellion is modeled after Spartacus Uprising, the Servile War in the Roman Republic, and that's kind of exactly what happened. Mm. among the soldiers that they captured. They had them have their own gladiatorial battles. Again, why this announcement is what pushes Katniss over the edge. <laughs> because she just had... she The first book she stands in for Prim, her sister, and volunteers in her place for yeah. Hunger Games. At the end, this was obvious that this was going to happen through the entire series. Mm-hmm. Prim gets blown up. Uh, yeah. Prim gets blown up, because, and I felt that that was like... So I did kind of close the book and said, oh, come on. It was the most contrived kind of way of getting Prim to be blown up so that I can't be dead. I'm like, what? Yeah, we knew that was going to happen. We didn't think it would happen in that way. <laughs> Especially because there are hints that President Snow was somehow in on this, but it's never spelled out. Uh, because it's District 13, the secret district that everyone thought was destroyed. Mm-hmm. that came out to lead the revolt against the capital. And they're Which the ones who awful. kill the children at the end. Mm-hmm. They're all corralled in front of the the president's palace. Um, mm-hmm. Again, Katniss has only done her special mission of specialness so that <laughs> she can witness this first. I will say one thing that is positive about both Catching Fire and the Mockingjay is Katniss's Increasing PTSD. Mm-hmm. I did like how well that was written. I did like how messed up she gets. Because unlike in, say, Harry Potter, where I feel that Harry gets really just kind of irritating, actually, I find that Katniss is reacting kind of the way I would if I was in this sort of situation, which I can't be because it's totally ridiculous. But <laughs> should it happen, I think, yes, more or less I would be that, that mental by the end of it. <laughs> And at the end, she assassinates President Coyne. Yay! Which, you know, good on her. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like her anyway. Also, not much of a character. <laughs> no, not much of one at all. The Are kind you of scheming actually- that goes on there, I at least like the fact that District mm-hmm. 13 isn't a wonderful, wonderful place. Yes, I do like that. <laughs> I, do, I do like the, the, the sort of sense of, yay, we're District 13 and everything sucks that goes on there. <laughs> I actually, at the end, I really liked President Snow. Like, I really thought he was an awesome character at the very end, when he's just tied to his pole and laughing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of connected with him there, and I was like, you are one awesome badass man. Because there's a hint that he was somehow involved in what happened in front of the presidential palace, mm-hmm. you feel like, actually, I planned this all along. Or just at least his, his, or he's at least manipulated Katniss into doing something, which just sort of shows that he is a true political mastermind, and he's a fitting antagonist for the series. To be honest, he's always got, he has the right level of creepy, controlling, and and relative intelligence. Although we can't really say much about the military intelligence because they have booby traps instead of an army. So, <laughs> yeah. 
Second point I want to talk about is just how unsubtle these books are. Uh, so subtle. Unsubtle. Yes. New word. <laughs> word of the day is unsubtle, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. <laughs> well, I actually don't really mind it because it is teen fiction. And I do actually think that the way it was written makes sense for the audience so that the points can be read out for people who might be quite young as readers. So there. I did find that, as I've said so many times in this podcast, I did get irritated at certain points. When Susan Collins telegraphs her themes and has characters repeatedly explain them, mm-hmm. for example, the country that this takes place in is called Panem, which mm-hmm. is Latin for bread, and then we have in the third book a character saying, there was this Latin saying from the Roman Empire about bread and circuses. Oh, it was there, yes. <laughs> All the characters in the capital have Roman names as their first names because just having gladiatorial battles isn't enough, apparently. Uh, and I, what bothered me as um, obvious themes was the love triangle story, which I felt... Uh, I, I did like Katniss's PTSD. I felt that was realistic. But I thought even for a teenager, she kind of agonized a lot more. Although perhaps I was an unusual teenager in that I didn't. So maybe I don't know how most female teenagers react to uh, two guys that they're not sure which they like and which they don't. So For a YA novel love triangle, it was a lot better executed than certain other books we could bring up at this point. Oh, hey, yes. <laughs> I'm not mentioning that. <laughs> but... It's also dragged out and... It becomes annoying because it's 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 not even related to the main thrust of the story. Because the, since the plot has gone outside of what Katniss is doing in the second two books, you, you care a lot less, to be honest. Especially about... because there's no sense that you should be going, well, I want her to end up with Peta, well, I want her to end up with Gail, and I'm going, I don't think she should end up with either of these people, really. Well, I t- my my reading of it was from the very beginning. I'm like, well, clearly she's going to end up with with Peter. Well, yeah, it's obvious. It was clear that that's what was going to happen at the end. Because <laughs> you can tell from the beginning that Gail's a bit of an asshole, yeah. actually. Yeah. And you can tell that Peter's the nice one. But Peter also gets absurdly self-sacrificing and almost creepy at some points. Yeah, and with how much devotion he shows for Katniss, which. At least this is addressed in the third book when he's being tortured in the capital and he comes mm-hmm. back and he sees mm-hmm. Katniss with those memories that he had before gone. Mm-hmm. And she realizes, well, actually, I'm not that great a person. It's a nice self-realization. And you kind of say, yes, you're actually fairly horrible. <laughs> and from the first book, she is actually fairly, she does have this very strong sort of selfish streak. Which is kind of a survivalist streak, so I understand why she has it, and I kind of liked it about her as well, but it was sort of also... Well, I I did appreciate the fact that you could have a main character in a YA book that was actually flawed in some way. Well, she was flawed in a way that I thought was very built by her environment, and I'm like, yeah, that's probably about the way that she should be flawed, to be honest. Yeah, so you do you do like her. Yeah. She does horrible things and gets put into horrible situations, but when yeah. that does happen, her choices at that point are understandable, even if it is just, I must survive, mm-hmm. and I can't be self-sacrificial like PETA is for everyone all the time. 
He just kind of walked around with the target on his chest. And then when he gets hit, you kind of go, yeah, yeah, that's what I expected. Again, I appreciate <laughs> Collins having Gale say that at one point where he's like, you know, you only seem to like people when they're in danger or damaged. Yeah. I am never going to be as beat up in <laughs> such awful situations as PETA was. I did find Gale to be a much more realistic character than PETA. Yeah. And I did kind of, I did actually kind of say, say, yeah, you go do your thing. The two, Gale and Katniss are not really meant for each other as like a relationship, but I kind of felt that Gale's the kind of person that you need to have around in the middle of the Civil War. I mean, let's be honest. In the very beginning, he's set up as being kind of a bad guy. Kind of a dick. Kind of, kind of not having the same moral code as Katniss. But that's okay, because he could be his own character too. Whereas Peter's kind of, kind of doe-eyed, to be honest, the whole time. Just going back to the unsubtlety point, I do feel that it did impact the narrative adversely in some cases, like with this hammering home of the games and the war, it's the same thing. Well, yes, Mm -hmm. if you have the capital city laced with game-like pods that set up traps, it is going to be the same thing. But clearly one is a controlled situation and what's happening in the third book isn't. I just can't see it as being a workable solution of control for anyone. Because the expense and the effort and the resources and the number of people you need to make that happen just isn't going to exist in some in a dictatorial situation. I don't think it doesn't make sense and it makes my head hurt. And then you have Plutarch who carries everything from his experiences being a game master into orchestrating the war. And I'm thinking, why is he in the war room? He is not a tactician. That's <laughs> his problem. He's, he's very strongly political, which was what he did. But in terms of moving things around and getting people to do things that you need to have happen in war, I'm not a war expert, I don't know. Why would you have him? <laughs> to be right. honest, a lot of the people in the war room in District 13, I'm not really sure what any of them are good at. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, well, you're leading the revolution, but none of you seem to be terribly good at this, so... Especially yeah. when there's a point made where they go, well, Katniss doesn't follow orders, so for her test, her test will be whether she can follow orders, because that's such a bad thing not to follow mm-hmm. orders, which none of the people in the high command seem to do with each other. Yeah, they're most they're extremely disorganized as a group of supposedly crack military peoples. Let's just actually talk about the the two arenas a little bit more, because I think it is kind of interesting. I mean, beyond the kind of ridiculous level of technology, the second one, I just don't know where the second one is. Because I know kind of where the first one is, because it's sort of the same environment as everywhere else. But the second one's some island somewhere. All of the arenas are constructed in ridiculously artificial ways to look realistic. Mm-hmm. The first one feels like it could be a real place, but the second it, one it, does not. The second one is a giant clock. And the one that's mentioned as being the one that Hamish was in with all the, like, pretty poisonous things. Yeah. That that was sort of an LSD level of conception. There was one with a controlled volcanic explosion, apparently. 
apparently. I don't know what they did. Lots of baking soda and vinegar, maybe. <laughs> well, it also happens in the second arena with the floods. That yeah. only happen in one wedge of the clock. Somehow? But you can move... Again, if they're able to manipulate the environment to such a degree that they can cause landslides, volcanic explosions, earthquakes, floods, why didn't they use any of this against the opposing forces in the rebellion? Yeah, or why aren't they able to take other ways to control their population? One thing that I did enjoy is the complete airheadedness of the people in the capital. Yeah, I was like, well, I guess if you have designed your population to be controllable, they would end up like this, yes. I do like that. That, too, is addressed in the third book, where it's like, well, if they were raised this way and didn't know anything else, Mm -hmm. is it really their fault that they turned out to be such frivolous, kind of awful people? The only bit that I thought was unrealistic is how they could really find the Hunger Games that entertaining in an airhead kind of way. I'm like, I get... I get the point of the Hunger Games in terms of uh, making the districts feel oppressed. I don't get them as sort of like this show that the capital people watch. I'm like, clearly you people have your own children. And <laughs> yeah, even it's like, this isn't nearly as good as Duck Dynasty. <laughs> like, even though you might not really think of like the people in the districts as, you know, people or something, how, how can you have this complete, this... Suspension of morality. Uh, that's also going back to gladiatorial combat, though, I think. Yeah, I guess. Is what Susan Collins is obviously going for, going back to my earlier rant on the subject. I do think that maybe it, it stretches what you would believe these people to be like, because unlike the Romans, which this is built on, the citizens of the capital are not raised in a culture of violence, as far as I can tell. It's not a militaristic society in of itself because most of their soldiers don't even come from the capital. They come from District 2. They're mm-hmm. mostly just raised to be frivolous and they overeat and they have all this technology and they don't have to do anything. So they're kind of soft and often really stupid. They're not violent. <laughs> they don't abuse their slaves themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do have slaves who have their tongues cut out. But that's mm-hmm. done by the military, and then they're absorbed into the capital's population as servants. Mm-hmm. They aren't in of themselves violent people who would yeah, really it's, it's cheer a- on this sort of thing going on, especially because the games are only held once a year, yeah. as opposed to all the time. It, there's some sort of weird disconnect where they can watch it on TV, but if it hap- but with like violence happening right next to them, they fall apart completely. But they like the one, and they sort of can't handle the other. I get, it's supposed to be a very obvious commentary on the media environment in our own culture. Yeah, it is. It is really obvious, but it's like the entire. Also, the entire capital is apparently the power structure is full of basically kind of PR assistants. I'm just also not convinced that that group of people could maintain the power no. because they are so soft. So. If the power is really held by one guy being President Snow and District 2, well, then why is District 2 the capital? I don't understand it. How is it that President Snow became president and what is yeah. the exact government system here where he's obviously a dictator? Yeah. But well, that <laughs> gets in my misunderstanding of the prehistory thing where I'm okay. 
I'm not sure how it like really all came about. I know there was a war at one point with District 13, and I know that prior. I think it's stated that prior to that there was some kind of problem, and this was the best solution to it. But I'm like, where are the rest of the people on this planet? Because to be honest, there's not really that many people in the district. There is supposed to have been a nuclear war. I think yeah. it was a nuclear war beforehand. Also, global warming and the society of the United States just fell apart on its own, too, which is also hinted at. Um, but <laughs> why, why they obviously do have knowledge of past history and that they're able to make these analogies in their names with Rome. People understand when people are making literary references, not people in the districts who, mm-hmm. even though they can read, which is mm-hmm. something I don't understand why in this society they want everyone to be literate. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't seem to have access to the books that people in the capital do, but those stories are still around. And yet, yet the, the past is capital. just this big vacuum. And if that knowledge is held in the capital, you think the resistance could have started there more easily. Mm-hmm. But, but apparently everyone's a magical airhead for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> Especially when you do have people who have Roman names. I don't understand how it is that this total nuclear war that wiped out everybody, except for this convenient part of the Western United States, apparently. I'm just like, why? There must be other people on this planet, is my problem. Yeah, and they don't, there's no mention of any other nation existing besides Panem. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that if there was a nation besides Panem that somehow Panem would have managed to keep that under wraps. Because things would have happened from the outside. You would have had interactions or wars or diplomatic relations or something. And that's kind of a weird part of the books. But I suppose it's glossed over because it's not really relevant to the immediate plot. So I don't really mind it so much. No, it would have helped flesh out the setting a great deal more than the bare bones Mm-hmm. And not very logical or well held together glimpses of the setting that we do get. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least if these things were acknowledged, I'd be able to go, oh, okay, well, maybe this makes sense. Maybe. <laughs> There's no counterexamples within this world. Panem is self-contained and isolated. But, I mean, it would have made the third book much more interesting had, say, District 13 found another nation to support their kind of revolution. Mm-hmm. That would have blown open the entire sort of framework. It might have honestly tightened it a little bit. <laughs> so, as the final sort of summary of The Hunger Games, honestly, pretty good. Quite entertaining the whole way through, although the um, second and third books are a little bit more wandering. But I'd still recommend them as worth reading at least once. Yes, I honestly did not think that I would actually like the first book when I started it. Just because yeah. of the genre that it's in and how popular it was. I did like it. I do think that this trilogy is far better than certain other bestsellers in the young adult category of previous years. If you're like me and you're interested in the development of YA just as a strange phenomenon of publishing, this is definitely worth exploring. And I can probably say I'd look forward to seeing what else Susan Collins comes up with if she writes anything else. Well, this isn't Um, her first book series either. I know. I think there is a kind of misconception that Susan Collins came out of nowhere, and these were her first books, and they were bestsellers. 
when actually she'd written bestsellers before. Yeah, it's, it was an in, it, I mean, it, I really was turned off of it because it, there was sort of Twilight and then there was this sort of followed up as the next thing. So I sort of made an assumption on how good it would be based on Twilight somehow. <laughs> but it is definitely worth a read. You probably already read it if you got this far in the podcast, but, uh, yeah. yeah, we had fun talking about it. Yeah, yeah, good book. I might reread The Hunger Games, but I won't be rereading the second two. <laughs> I probably won't reread the first one either, but, you know. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me back again, because I never leave. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yes, actually, there has been some major developments since we did our last podcast together. Number yes. one, I got my master's degree. Which Congratulations. readers of the blog already know. Number two, Marie is now married. I know Yay. this because I was at the wedding. He was probably the best, best man ever. <laughs> and the other development would be that I have begun my clinical years in medical school and I'm already tired and it's been three days. <laughs> okay. But that doesn't matter because we'll probably do more podcasts anyway. <laughs>